This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Well, that's our prayer this morning. I pray the Lord will show you Christ uh, from His Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open it, please, if you would, to the book of Ruth. You'll find that on page 222 in the, the Pew Bibles you have in front of you. This morning we start a new series. Uh, I hope to spend just the next four weeks, a chapter a week, in this wonderful story, the book of Ruth. This morning you can remain seated because I'm going to read the, the whole chapter here in just a few moments. The book of Ruth, uh, the authorship of it is attributed to Samuel, though it's hard to be really sure that that is the case. It seems to have been written just after the time of King David or during the early stages of the kingship of David. This wonderful little book is considered a literary masterpiece, not just among the books of the Bible, but among all literature. It's just very densely packed with with truth and wisdom, and yet it remains uh, full of charm, a literary gem, if you would. So let's read chapter 1 this morning, Ruth chapter 1. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. But the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, See, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of God. Let me pray one last time. Lord, show us Christ in the context of your great mercy here. Teach us your ways, lead us into understanding, give each of us, God, the grace of your blessing, the working of your spirit in our hearts and minds. We pray in Christ's name, amen. In his work on biblical theology, uh, James Hamilton describes Ruth as a magnificent tapestry of mercy. A tapestry of mercy. He refers to it as a tapestry, tapestry of mercy because it contains various threads or motifs that, that run through the entire canon, the entire Bible. And they come together to form this beautiful presentation of God's mercy. Consider some of the threads that are part of this tapestry. There's the thread of God's providence. The, God's invisible hand behind all things that's happening in life. The mysterious way that God works through history, both through big events and small events, like the life of a, of a family, always to fulfill His will. Then there's the thread of God's loving kindness. Three times the word chesed is used here, which speaks of God's loyal, loving kindness to His covenant people. And then there's the thread of redemption, 23 times the word redemption or redeemer is used in this short book. And then there's the thread of the vindication of the faithful. We see in this book the reversal of fortunes, how God brings fullness of life out of seeming hopelessness. And lastly, there's the thread, the motif of God's covenant community, the value of belonging to it, of serving it, and loyalty to it. All these threads come together and more to put together what he calls this beautiful tapestry of God's mercy, a presentation that is found in a historical account, real events 
that display God's faithful mercy to his faith, to his people, and to his promises. Uh, despite the wrong choices that they and we often tend to make. And we see God work not through big heroes like Joshua, great conquerors through warriors, but it's like it all zooms down to this one little family. God working in the lives of women in the ancient world. It's interesting that the book of Ruth is found in different locations on several of the different ancient scrolls without going over all the versions of it. But the two most important ones are what's called the Masoretic Text, which is the Hebrew Bible. And the order of the books of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth, is not found where we have it here. It's found after the book of Proverbs. The most likely uh, reason or the most probable connection is the fact that Proverbs 31 ends with a description of what is called there in verse 10, an excellent wife or a worthy woman, it could be translated. And in the book of Ruth, we find that very same Hebrew phrase in chapter 3, verse 11, when Boaz says, everyone knows to Ruth, you are a worthy woman, a noble woman. In other words, it was placed after Proverbs 31, uh, for a thematic or illustrative purpose. Ruth is an illustration of the Proverbs 31 woman. But in uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, the, and is the basis for the order of our English Bible, the book of Ruth is placed where we have it here, which is right after the book of Judges. And I think... In this case, it is associating the book of Ruth, not thematically with Proverbs, but associating it with the storyline, the plot line that begins in Genesis, and it will extend through 2 Kings. We know from the scriptures that God promised to reverse the effects of sin, to reverse the effects of human rebellion, and to bring blessing to all nations through a descendant of Abraham, a male descendant who would come from the tribe of Judah. But this promise seemed at risk. It seemed in great doubt, and in particular in the time of judges after the conquest. And so Ruth is placed there in order to record God's divine intervention that preserved the royal line from Judah from Joshua through that period there of the judges until we come to uh, King David. Many of you know that Ruth ends with a, a genealogy that connects it with King David. But for you and me, even more importantly, this, group, this book shows us how God preserved the royal line through whom would descend the greatest king, the king of kings, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Ruth serves as a, br as a bridge, as it were, right, between uh, the conquest during the time of judges and then in the times of kings. There are many references in this book to foreign customs, foreign practices, uh, laws, laws from Leviticus, for example, and I think it's best that, to explain them as we go rather than explaining them up front. So what I'd like to do this morning I like to follow the trajectory, the plot line of chapter 1, the arc of the plot here in chapter 1. 
And it begins with crisis. From crisis, it moves quickly to a decision, from decision to tragedy, from tragedy to return, and finally it ends with hope, a glimmer of hope. So let's follow the arc here of the storyline in chapter 1. It begins with crisis. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. When the judges ruled, this was a time of chaos. This was a time of God's judgment upon the people of Israel. The time of judges is pretty long. The time of judges followed the death of Joshua after the conquest of the promised land, though they did not conquer it all, until the time of the first king, who was King Saul. Depending on who you study, that could be uh, 200 years or it could be as much as 400 years. So it was a long stretch of time, and during this long stretch of time, there was a leadership vacuum. There was no king. Scripture says, without vision, the people perish. And it was a time of extreme moral and spiritual decline among the people of Israel. It was very chaotic, very dark. When you read the book of Judges at the beginning, it explains the transition between the generation of conquest and this new generation under Judges. In chapter 2, verse 10, the book of Judges, it says, There arose another generation after them, after Joshua, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They forgot about deliverance from Egypt. They forgot about the great miracles of God and provision And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the various gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. And this brought about uh, some consequences. Verse 14 of chapter 2 of Judges says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He would send people among them who would conquer them, would take their harvest and ruin them. And then what, what the people would do is they'd wake up for a minute and cry out to God, Oh God, deliver us, deliver us. They're going to destroy us. Aren't we your people? And God would raise up judges. Now, when you think judge, don't think of somebody wearing a robe sitting on a bench. (laughs) These judges were liberators. They were uh, military liberators. They were men like Samson and Gideon and a woman like Deborah. None of them were perfect. They all had their flaws. Verse 16 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But then, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they hoard after other gods. Right. And so this cycle continued and continued for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, up and down. Terrible to even imagine it. And then the book of Judges, the very last phrase, last sentence, right before Ruth, ends with these words. Many of you are familiar with them. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time, in other words, of moral relativism. Not very different like our own. It's a a pluralistic time. People defined their own morals and defined their own truth. And so it was in this time of chaos that this story takes place. And thinking about the time of Judges, 
I think it reminds us that the spiritual faithfulness of one generation cannot automatically secure the faithfulness and the spiritual vitality of the next generation. This was after the great conquest. And I think this is true for Christian families. This is true for Christian churches, which is why it's so important to continue to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Teach the gospel to the next generation. Involve the next generation in the work of the gospel so they could see its reality in God's work and presence. Not just hear of it, but experience it, you see. So this is the time. But it also shows us if this was the time that God could be at work even in the darkest moments. It was a time of moral upheaval and chaos, just like our own. Yet God was doing something. He was moving. Well, that wasn't the only crisis. It says there was a famine in the land. And that's also a sign of God's judgment. You say, why? Well, it wasn't just any land. This was the promised land this was the land flowing with milk and honey this was the fertile land the land that was to be fruitful and you say well why was it why were they experiencing a famine then well because as Leviticus says in chapter 26 they had turned away from the Lord it says in verse 3 of Leviticus 26 if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them then I will give you rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall, re shall yield their fruit. But of course they hadn't in the time of Judges. You see, for Israel, when there was no rain, when there was no harvest, no one said, oh, Mother Nature's not cooperating. When there was no rain and there was no harvest, what was this? This was the heavy parental hand of discipline from God Almighty, seeking to remind them, seeking to turn them around. Remember, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant to which they belonged, had both its blessings and its curses. And they were based upon their obedience, as I just read, and their faithfulness to God. And God doesn't make idle threats. And so it was a very difficult time, morally, socially, economically. And God began to move. You see, discipline, discipline is never purposeless from God. Even famines are used several times in the Bible to move people in a certain direction for God to accomplish something. It was Famine that drove Jacob and his sons into Egypt. It was famine that drove Abraham at one point into Egypt. And so this is the dark time. Moral chaos, economic chaos. Then comes a decision. This man needs to make a decision for his family. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Sojourn means to, to briefly visit as an alien. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. 
And he provides those details because there, there was another Bethlehem. He's saying this is the Bethlehem that is in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. And so it was decision time. There's a famine. People are going hungry. And Bethlehem was in a very fertile area. In fact, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. (laughs) But it had become the house of no bread (laughs) at that time. And so this man, whose name means my God is king, has to decide just how much God really is his king. (laughs) He has to make a decision. Decision about whether he stays in the promised land, stays with the people of the covenant, waits upon the Lord, trusts the Lord, seeks the Lord, or whether he leaves and goes to Moab. Moab, understand, was a very pagan land filled with false gods. They were the descendants of Lot. They were the product of that sordid, incestuous relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter. Moab's relationship with Israel was never good. Remember the time when Balak, king of Moab, hired uh, the prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel? And when Israel needed supplies as they, were, as they were sojourning, they refused to let them pass safely through their land. And then the women of Moab seduced the Israelite men. All this brought God to judge Moab. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, No Moabite is to enter the assembly of Yahweh till the 10th generation, which essentially means never. <laughs> so th- these were the Moabites. This was Moab, you see. And so he had to make a decision under pressure. He decides to leave the covenant family and travel into Moab. Did he make the right choice? <laughs> we got to make a living. Can't live hungry. Should he have gone? We got to provide. Or was it a lack of faith, you see? The narrator doesn't make any comment or any judgment, but it's not far to ask, I think, or not hard to ask, why go off to a country and a people who have many false gods and one false god, Chemosh, demands human sacrifice? This was playing with fire. This the kind of place to raise a nice godly family? Among all these false gods, this was a voluntary exile. An exile from the land of promise. A voluntary one. An exile from the covenant community. And it would change Naomi's life. And their life. You know, you know our lives are, are, the, are the product of many, many circumstances and providence and situations, events that come into our life, a mixture of many, many experiences and influences. Sometimes, like here, we face the consequences of circumstances that we have no control over, right? Like famine, uh, like a drought, like an economic downturn, like government shutdowns, (laughs) like fires, like wars. And our lives are affected by the consequences of events that we had absolutely no control over. But the defining moments for us come when we 
we choose how to react to those moments. We choose how to respond to things, these things we have no control over. And sometimes our life is shaped by the consequences of decisions that others make for us. It all falls on you. Naomi was the wife of a man who decided to move to Moab when things got rough, you see. We don't know how much she had to do with that decision. And so it's really a crossroads for them and, and for us. And the question is, what kind of choices are we making? What kind of choices are you making? See, as Christians, for you and me, it's not a matter of geography primarily. Jesus said, neither in Jerusalem nor on this mountain shall you worship God. For us, that's not about a land of promise, but for you and me, it is still about the covenant community. It's about the place where God nourishes us with the bread from heaven. And so what kind of choices are we making? Those that take us away from intimacy with God? Or those that keep us close to intimacy with God? And so he made his decision. And eventually, the story moves into tragedy. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now these took Moabite wives, and a, a good ancient Jew re reading this would say, oh no. <laughs> There's another tragedy. They married Moabite women. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years, so much for sojourn. <laughs> and then both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. One painful blow after another. I mean, maybe the move to Moab made sense at first for a little while. You know, we have food now, and eventually, hey, the boys found, <laughs> found wives here, but it, it all sort of begins to crumble. You know, she was now a widow, and she was childless, without sons or grandsons to continue the family line. And remember, that was everything in the ancient world. There was no social security, right? Your, your protection were your children, the next generation. They were your social security. In some cases, they were your defense, your warriors. And in the covenant community, they were to care for each other. But a woman who was a widow and without any sons would lose her her. Her, her, her properties. She'd become an alien among her own people, separated. And here was Naomi. She wasn't even among her own people. She was distant, separated from the covenant community. And now she had lost everyone who loved her and came with her. She was left alone, except for these two Moabite women. And I'm sure she probably asked the question, though it's not in the text, that we all ask at times like this, where is God in all this? You know? Where is God? <laughs> Why us? You know? Well, she did see God in it, right? You heard me read verse 13 and then later as well. 13 says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, she knows that ultimately God is sovereign. So she sees God in it, but at this point, she only sees God as against her in it. That's it, you know, so far. And so from that, we move to return. Verse 6, 
The turning point in Naomi's experience comes when she hears, it says. When she hears while she's in the fields of Moab, in other words, she's making her own living, picking up the the scraps. When she hears there in the fields of Moab that Yahweh, that the Lord God, the God of Israel, had visited his people and given them food. That's the turning point. And so she set out set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. This is about returning, returning. Several times the author uses that verb. Now, on the surface, that seems like a uh, common-sense kind of decision, maybe the same kind of decision that Elimelech made, right? Hey, the economy's good back there. (laughs) Let's go back where the economy's good again. So on the surface, it could be just that, but really, spiritually speaking, and the scriptures are about our spirituality, spiritually speaking, it's a move toward the Lord. It's a returning. Several times he says, return, returning. It's a turning towards God, a returning towards God and his people, the covenant family, the place of God's blessing. She has no idea what exactly awaits her because she's a widow going back uh, to Bethlehem. But she does decide to return. She's almost like the prodigal son, right? Having turned away, she hears that there's blessing at home. And like the prodigal, she says, there's food even for the poorest in my father's house. Better than living among the pigs. And so her returning to some degree is an act of faith. A turning back towards God, not just a practical decision. She has to believe that Yahweh is blessing. She has to believe that what she's heard about the word, about what God is doing is true. Now, what happens next on the journey home, scholars are divided regarding what's going on there because three times Naomi does what? Three times she tries to convince her Moabite daughters-in-law to turn around and go back. And so the, the question is, was she right in doing that or was she wrong in doing that? Should she have just let them come and just take them with her? Or should, was it right for her to try to turn them around and make them go back to Moab? Let's read what happened. Let's go through each of those three times. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. For her, it is a return. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. You turn around and go that way. May the Lord, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. You hear for the first time that word chesed, that Hebrew word, which is hard to translate with one English word, sometimes translated loving kindness, sometimes uh, mercy, uh, the faithful mercy of God. It's all wrapped up in his relationship with the covenant. May the Lord bless you. Uh, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Go back, get married. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. That's the first time she tried to turn them around. Now the second time, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Again, return. Return, it's her return. But Naomi said, turn back, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? You're going to wait 20 years and not marry, waiting for my sons to grow up? (laughs) There's more to that. We'll see in the next few chapters. No, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. But the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There's the second time. She tried to turn them around. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clinged to her. So that was the second time. Interesting, the author uses the the verb from Genesis chapter 2, Uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave in every way, cling to his wife. The the author uses that very same verb here, says Ruth clinged, she cleaved to Naomi. And so here comes the third time. Now it's only Ruth. Um, Orpah's gone back. And she says, verse 15, see or look, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Notice that. Return. You too. Go. Return after your sister-in-law, she says to her. Now, here's the difficulty. Was this right? Or was this wrong? Those who see this in a more positive light say, listen, Naomi believed that God, the true God, could bless her daughter-in-laws in Moab just as well as in Judah. And she wishes them God's chesed, God's loving kindness, knowing and thinking that it would be harder for them as Moabite widows in Judah, she urged them to return. In other words, you have your best shot back there. And so she was really seeking the best for them. Those, that's how some see it in that positive light. But there's also something that seems wrong about this. And some think, well, this, she seems selfish. And she seems to have a lack of concern for their souls, which is more important than their material existence. She seems to have very little concern for their spiritual condition. Go back to those gods, including the ones that want human sacrifice. She seems to be more concerned then about their material condition than she is about their spiritual condition. And did she simply see them as two more burdens to deal with, you know? What am I going to do? with two Moabite women, widows in tow with me, going back to Judah. Two more mouths to feed, (laughs) two more problems to solve, you know, so. So, what is it? What is it? I think we see a little bit of both. Knowing human nature, the human nature, what? We, on some level, we have good in mind. On another level, we're confused. She's a product of the time of judges, right? It's probably a mixture of the two. There's a, there's a basic faith expressed here. She believes in God. She prays, may God bless you with his hesed, with his loving kindness. She knows God's sovereign. She believes that. But she displays that same sort of weak faith and moral confusion that her husband did when he took her to Moab, right? 
Couldn't God overcome whatever they thought they would face going back to Bethlehem? But she just doesn't see it in that. And is God really out to crush her? Is that, the pur- is that God's purposes? Is that where it all leads to destroy you? She's not clear here. There's theological confusion. There's maybe even some sense of moral confusion. She's the product of her age. But she does seem to have genuine faith and concern for her daughters-in-law. I think maybe the biggest thing about this in light of of, of the whole book of Ruth is that Naomi has yet to learn and to see that when God sends hard providences to his children, to his people, He always has ultimate good in mind. And Naomi has not seen that yet. As William Cooper wrote in his hymn, right, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. She hasn't seen the smiling face. He's against me. He's out to crush me. Well, Orpah hears all this and Orpah hears it, and she sees the practicality of it all, right? And so she kisses her goodbye, returns to Moab, and as one one commentator said, she walks off the pages of Scripture forever. Nothing more to hear about Orpah. It's as if she chose the wide road that she thought would bring her the best opportunities here rather than the narrow road that leads to life. But Ruth is a great contrast. She clings to Naomi, and she expresses some of the most memorable statements of love and loyalty and radical self-sacrifice and friendship and commitment found in the Bible. Words that sound like wedding vows, which is why so many use them as wedding vows. In fact, it is a vow. It ends with a vow. Listen to what she says Many of you know it well. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And here it is. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord, here's the vow. May the Lord, may Yahweh do so to me. And more also if anything but death parts me from you. What words, huh? The question is, is this saving faith? Is this conversion? Has Ruth come to give herself to the living God? Well, we shouldn't underestimate how unlikely Ruth's response would be for a widow in the ancient world. Any ancient Jewish woman reading this would go, wow. (laughs) You see, uh, that was a world where women had to seek fulfillment, rest, provision, and safety through a husband and through children or maybe grandsons, you see. And Ruth says no to all that. She says no in a sense to the best possibility for that humanly speaking, right? She has no guarantees about what lies ahead for her in Judah, in Bethlehem. And she seems to have a mother-in-law who doesn't even want her. (laughs) And yet she, she commits herself, not only to Naomi in friendship, but to Naomi's God, right? So is this 
is this saving faith? God only knows the truth about what was happening in Ruth's heart at that moment. But beloved, I'd have to say this is, first of all, I'd say this is undoubtedly the turning point in her life. This was it. She was at the crossroads, right? She needed to decide. Wide road, Moab, or Orpah, best shot at a husband, or narrow road. Who knows what lies ahead? And her words, the words that she expressed, are, are the essence of true faith. What is she doing? Forsaking old things and embracing the true God. Come what may. You hear the words of Jesus in here. If anyone will come after me, right, be my disciple. Let him take up his cross daily. Right? Die to yourself. Die to your people. Die to your land. And follow me, you see. What she, what she heard about Yahweh, the God, the true God, from Naomi and her family and her husband all those years, those 10 years, we don't know. But we do know this. This was her crossroads. Whatever she had learned, this was the moment. Her sister-in-law made her choice, and now she needed to make hers, right? And perhaps something, something of Naomi's frail faith as shaky as it was at times, as confused as it was at times, something of Naomi's frail faith that she had seen and heard throughout those years is now finally becoming her own faith. My faith. I'm going because I want to go. This is my choice. And I would say that every young person here today, your parents' faith is not your faith. You do need to make your own choice. You need to come to the crossroads of life and decide, this is my God or not. And this is true, beloved, with everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We come to a crossroad in our life. Whatever it is that brings you to that crossroad where you're choosing, Moab or Christ, whether it's personal hardship, whether it's personal pain, whether it's the emptiness of, of the life of sin you've pursued, whatever it is that brings you to that crossroads where you hear, today is the day of salvation. When that moment comes, your decision needs to sound much like that of, of Ruth. Where you dwell, I will dwell. Where you go, where I will go. Your God is my God. Determined never to go back and cling to God through Jesus Christ. He is the Savior who died for your sins. He is the way, the truth, and life. He is the only salvation there is. You need to embrace him. It's interesting that Naomi said, go back and find rest in Moab. And Jesus says, no, no, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Well, in verses 19 through 21, they arrive. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Small, small town guys. <laughs> and maybe they saw them in the distance. And the women gathered around her and said, Is, is this Naomi? <laughs> I think that's meant to be understood as somewhat of a cutting remark, you know. In other words, the years, the 10 years of hardship have left Naomi almost unrecognizable. Her heart's filled with bitterness. 
And Naomi responds, do not call me Naomi. The root of that word means pleasant or pleasantness. He says, call me Mara. The root of that word means bitter or bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And here the author uses El Shaddai rather than Yahweh, the Almighty One, the Omnipotent God. You know, like, who can resist Him? (laughs) I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I thought you went away starving. (laughs) Maybe she's just talking about her husband and sons. or, Or maybe that's just how we feel, you know. It was better before. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant when the Lord, when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty El Shaddai has brought calamity upon me? Hmm. She is very much struggling with understanding what's happened in her life, right? The trials of life, as we said in 1 Peter, did not make her better, they made her bitter. I went out full, I came back empty. Her words, are, her words almost reproach God, like Job in those hardest hours. Why me? You know, beloved, heavy loss and bereavement and hardship, it could, it could take us to that place, as we reflected in 1 Peter, a place where we're almost charging God with problems of our life and laying it all at his feet. And, and like her, we feel empty. We feel empty. I say feel empty because when Naomi, though she felt empty and I'm sure was in despair, could not see that God had already been working, <laughs> filling her, even up to this point in the story. He led her here about what he was doing back where the people of God were, where she had left. Faith comes from hearing, and it stirred her up again. She heard that God was moving, you see, when she was out there working, slaving for herself. And then he provided protection for two widows, one a Moabite crossing over, going over to Bethlehem. They arrived safely. And maybe beyond all of that, he gave her a profound companionship. What a friend like Ruth, huh? to go with you, to walk with you through all of life's struggles. She seemed to be totally oblivious to all of this. Why call me, why call me Naomi Pleasant? Call me bitter. I came back empty. What's that make Ruth standing right there? (laughs) Really? Is she nothing? I mean, think about it. Some of the most beautiful words we, we have in the Bible of commitment and love and friendship. And verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Literally, she stopped talking to her. No, thank you. No, how glorious of God to give me such a friend with such a journey as this at this time in my life. There's none of that. I'm empty. And when all we can meditate about, beloved, is the pains or the hurts or the difficulties, the hardships, when that's what we chew on morning and night and when we're laying in our beds, it will always be difficult to see how God has always been graciously filling us. 
always caring for us, right? She seems blind to God's grace and kindness, his mercy towards her in all these things, and particularly in giving her a friend like Ruth. Well, finally, it turns to hope. If only a glimmer of hope at this point in the story, still, it's hope. Verse 22. So Naomi returned. Yes, she returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, again returned, coming back. And they came to Bethlehem. Here it is. At the beginning of barley harvest. There was a harvest. She came back just in time. <laughs> it's like when that uncle drops in, right when dinner's cooking. <laughs> You're all, how? Hi. <laughs> Here they come. It's barley harvest right when they arrive, you know. And the wheat harvest would be just a few weeks away, you see. All of this is, is hope. But Naomi's not there yet. She needs to have her eyes open to the mercies of God for an empty woman like her as she feels empty. She needs to have her eyes open to what the gospel teaches you and me in the book of Romans, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. There is ultimate good. She needs to remember that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But she doesn't see any of this. She does not yet see mercy. But she will soon. Now she was so full of self-pity that she could not recognize the goodness of God in her daily life. And it's a shame when a Christian gets to the same place. So full of self-pity that we can't give thanks we can't praise God. We move away from the covenant community because we just don't see his mercy and goodness day in, day out. What more can we learn that we've, from this than we already have? There's so much. I leave you with these four reflections. And the first comes from verses 1 through 5. When we look outside God's promises, we will find ourselves feeling empty. God alone can fill us. It was Augustine who said that human beings, everyone, has a God-shaped hole in us. And sometimes we leave the place of God's blessing, the place where God is nurturing us, the place of intimacy with God, because we think we'll be fuller over here, away from that. And actually, it'll bring us to emptiness. These, this, we make these kinds of decisions, you know what? I find we make these kinds of decisions often when we are comparing, you know. Boy, look what they're eating in Moab. You see what she's driving these days? And we make decisions that take us further from that place of spiritual nurture. Secondly, sometimes... Sometimes God empties our hands and stomachs only to fill our hearts with something much better. And that's something that's hard to learn. Emptiness prepares the way for fullness. Emptiness opens our eyes to God's fullness. 
He brings hard things into your life, beloved, because he loves you. He loves you, and he wants you to receive something that is more precious and more permanent than that which you lost. And he wants you to see the value of it and prize it. Thirdly, no matter how far a believer has drifted from God, no matter how long you've lived in Moab, right, there is always a way back. And it's always about returning, returning, he says several times, turning, returning, returning. And what was Naomi turning from? Well, we don't know how much of, we don't know how much of what came upon her life was the result of her decision. We know Elimelech seems to have led them. We don't know whether she struggled with that decision or encouraged it. But to whatever degree Naomi was bitter for whatever reason, for whatever, to whatever degree she might feel shame going back to Bethlehem after 10 years now with nothing, according to her, there is always grace and mercy waiting for her. And so it is with every Christian. However long you've been in Moab, if you are truly the son or daughter of Christ, if you belong to him, it's a matter of confessing your sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Maybe some of you need to, to think through that. Come back fully to him. And maybe some of you need to come to him for the very first time, meaning you've lived your whole life in Moab. It's time to say, your God is my God. And lastly, I think Ruth's commitment points us to the work of God in Jesus Christ in this sense, beloved. In Christ Jesus, we have someone more committed to us than Ruth was to Naomi. Ruth was God's gracious, merciful gift to a widow. And Jesus is God's gracious, merciful gift to sinners. Ruth left her people and her land and went to another place. The Son of God left the glories of heaven and came to this world. Where you dwell, I will dwell, said Ruth. And scripture says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Where you walk, I will walk. Your people will be my people. Jesus was called what? The friend of sinners. Only death will part me from you. And Jesus says, not even death will part me from you. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you.